welcome to the Mind Muscle Podcast. Here's your host, Simon DeVere. Welcome to Mind Muscle, the place where we explore the history, philosophy, and science behind everything going on in health and fitness today. I am, of course, your host, Simon DeVere, and there is nothing new besides all that has been forgotten. Anyway, I just wanted to quickly jump in with a uh, brief announcement. Let me uh, get a quick sip of my Athletic Greens. It's actually not a shameless plug, by the way. I think this is the only podcast right now not sponsored by Athletic Greens. Um, I actually am just uh, testing out the product for myself, but um, no discount code, no plug, just trying it out. But um, anyway, a little housekeeping before we dive into the episode today. Um, I just wanted to thank a number of folks for spending your time listening, sharing your feedback with me. So um, got to be honest, I really appreciate the positive feedback that I've been seeing. It is actually motivating me to make content. Um, there have been some good questions that I'm going to hope to include and, and answer for you guys. And then, um, yeah, the negative comments I don't love so much. Those are you know keeping me awake at night. Um, I just really can't shake it. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll have to figure out how I uh, handle that. But but really appreciate you guys uh, liking, subscribing, giving me the positive feedback. And um, yeah, all you haters, you are living rent free in my head right now, and I just I can't even function without thinking about what you guys have said. So um, yeah, it's all going great. Um, and then yeah, so so today, guys, I actually want to uh, well. To preface today's topic, how I came up with it, I, I was spending time actually taking my feedback, listening to some of the past episodes, and um, one of the things that I felt that I was not actually doing a great job communicating was just how I, I think it comes off that I'm a little bit dogmatic about a certain set of ideas within health and fitness. And um, I just don't think that I was communicating my ideas as as well as I can in that regard. Um, so anyway, today I thought it would be worthwhile for us to take a deep dive into the idea of the middle way, which obviously is going to take us back to one of the central tenets of Buddhism. Um, but this is something that I actually find is highly consistent with the way I actually approach fitness, despite how that can even come off um, in a podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, so th this to me is one of the the true organizing you know principles, not only for my training, but how I approach a lot in life. Um, so as I now have a few hot takes on record, um, I just wanted to pour a little bit of cool water on them <laughs> and. Uh, and show that I'm actually not one of these uh, hot take clickbait guys. Um, I, I really do fancy myself somebody who understands why people do a lot of things. I have my opinion and I can tell you why I believe it. But um, if you uh, choose to not do every single thing I'm saying, um, that really is okay. Uh, not only for, for me and you, but your, your health and fitness will be fine and you'll still be able to attain a lot of your goals. So I just wanted to have what I think is going to be a more sane and sober discussion 
about health and fitness than, um, than I think the fitness space certainly provides for. And then actually taking my own medicine. I don't even know if I've done a great job of communicating this yet. So, um, today I'm going to try to make a, uh, a much better, you know, communicate better how I actually feel about a lot of these ideas in, in health and fitness. And again, as you can kind of see where we're going, um, there's a lot of truth to a lot of even stupid ideas. Um, and so I think a lot of times we're going to find that, you know, splitting the difference and actually resisting going all in on any ideas is generally a good practice. And there's a reason that so many sages throughout human history have kind of told us that exact same idea in, in different words. So again, um, Buddhism might be new to some, um, but actually, you're going to find this idea of the middle way that is contained within Buddhism is actually contained within pretty much every tradition you can think of. So, um, so yeah, we'll focus on the Buddhist roots of it and how that applies to health and fitness today. But that that is where we're going after, real quick. Um, so a lot of people are asking me this right now, and and I know how this happens with podcasters. Like That right there is typically how people will introduce something that in reality, nobody has actually asked them about. They're just trying to frame a discussion on the thing they would like to talk about. So again, um, I'm actually serious though, like just today, specifically three people asked me about this. And then last week, countless more. Um, so one issue that I am just seeing a lot right now in, in sessions with real people, and I am actually having people ask me about this, elbow pain from strength training. So um, I want to run down something that I've actually walked again, three people just today through, a bunch more last week. Um, I have a lot of different people at really different phases in their fitness journey, all experiencing the exact same issue. Um, depending on the circles you run in, you may hear this called by different names. Sometimes if you're a meathead like me, maybe we call it middle-aged pull-up syndrome. If you hang around the country club a lot, maybe they call it tennis elbow around there. Um, maybe your folks that hang around their doctor's offices alike, you know, we'll, we'll use, you know, maybe a term like tendonitis, something like that. But again, this is one of those things where if you are north of the age of 35, I'm sure you've already felt this in some way. Um, elbow pain is one of the most common things I see popping up in sessions. So today, actually, you know, specific reference, I get a call from a buddy. He has jumped back into strength training and he is just noticing elbow pain right now, um, particularly happening in deadlifts, a couple other things. So I kind of ran him through the same thing I put everybody through here. So one, we're casting out a broad net because there's a lot of people that we're trying to help out with the same movement. So broadly, one of the things I know, even though I'm not there with my buddy lifting, is that the the elbow winds up getting pretty predictably restricted from a lot of movements that people are continually doing throughout their day. So we have a series of movements and postures we can run through that can basically function to correct the chronic pain that gets associated with bad movement patterns over years. So what I do with the client when we introduce these, don't expect magic overnight fixes but I'm not exaggerating. If you seriously commit to four to six weeks, you are going to see noticeable changes to the pain you're feeling. So first thing I instructed my buddy to do, and we did this over the phone, so we'll see if we can do well here. So if you've been experiencing elbow pain right now, 
just bear with me and we're going to first talk about a position called the quadruped position. If you have ever done yoga, this is where you're setting up to do your cat and cow. If you've never done yoga, we just describe this position quite simply as hands and knees. Get down on your hands and knees. And so now when you set up, you're going to notice that your wrist, just as you place your hands on the ground, is going to be in about 90 degrees of flexion. And we're just going to start right from there. So your first move, I want you to imagine right now like there is a Sharpie in your belly button. Don't ask why. I've never come up with a good reason for that, but just accept my precondition. There's a Sharpie in your belly button, and your task is to draw a big circle on your mat or your carpet or your floor, wherever you find yourself right now. Draw a big circle. So what's going to happen right now is you're going to start to feel actually a few joints start to connect to. Depending on where you're tight, that's the one you're going to feel the most. But we're doing a lot of good work right now for your hips, your shoulders, your elbows, and your wrists. Everybody's getting a little love. And then again, you are going to notice the one that needs the most work. So this is also a great diagnostic position to get yourself into. If you sit down and you're really feeling your hips a lot, well, guess what? You need a lot of hip mobility. If you feel your shoulders, you can follow the logic. You probably need some shoulder work, wrists, elbows, so on. This is going to be a great diagnostic tool to jump down. Um, and then just quickly on your own assess what your joint needs are. If I was there with you, I'd help you through it, but I'm not. So we're going to talk through how you'll do this on your own. Um, so first position, we are in that standard quadruped working a circle. And actually, I first describe it as a circle. But let's go back. To be honest, it's going to look more like a spiral. If you're doing this right, your range of motion is going to expand as you do the movement. And it's also going to expand as we do this movement continuously over time. So you should notice an extension of range of motion, not only within the single session, but we're also going to see an extension of range of motion and a reduction of pain in ranges of motion over time. So these should both be trending within an individual session and within an individual block of training. It should all be improving. So the other concept I tell people with this too is these movements are going to feel a lot different than strength training. So now I don't want you to have any of that idea of no pain, no gain, whatever. Um, right now we're actually thinking this concept pain-free range of motion. Um, there's a cartoon when I was a kid. I don't even know if there's any cartoons anymore, but I used to read newspapers, especially Sunday mornings. And there was a far side comic where man goes into a doctor's office and he says something to the effect of, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor responds back, don't do this. Um, I still reference that little comic strip just to communicate the idea of pain-free range of motion. When I am doing mobility work with people, that is what we are grounding all of this movement in is do no harm. If it hurts, don't do it. Um, you got me, right? Like we're not extending these joints into ranges of motion that are causing pain and holding. It's not how I want you working this stuff. So assuming that our circles or more accurately, slowly growing spiral has gone well, the next piece I'm going to want you to do is now externally rotate your hands, and then we're going to come right back to the quadruped. So what that looks like now is if in our standard position, those fingers are pointing away from your legs, 
when we externally rotate the shoulder and place the hands on the ground, now your fingers should be pointing towards your knees. That external rotation, you're going to immediately notice when you place your hand on the ground, we're going to feel some tightness and restriction in the wrists and forearms. So this external rotation is going to bias this circle now to start working in there. And this piece is incredibly important, circling back to my people with their elbow issues. When we externally rotate, get those forearms loose, we're going to start to be able to actually now improve your range of motion around the elbow by loosening that tissue up. And then now this is going to carry over into what's important to you. As long as we stay with this thing consistently. Um, and, and to be honest, here's how I actually work this in sessions. Great time to do it would be first thing, we'll do it in the warm up or what I prefer to call joint prep. That's what we're doing in a warm up is getting the joints ready to work the movements that we're using in the workout. So warm ups are never random. I know what lifts we're working and we will mobilize those joints ahead of time. Another good way to do this can actually be in between sets. So if you're doing legitimate strength training, and actually we'll probably have to do an episode on this, but you know, file that away. We need to talk about the difference between hypertrophy and strength training. I've dived into it a little bit, but these modes are really different. And one of the biggest differences between your hypertrophy sets, gaining muscle, trying to look good, that world, and actually anti-aging, even though my anti-aging folks, you know, rarely identify with hypertrophy. But here, rest periods are ideally going to be 60 to 90 seconds. When we get into legitimate strength training, we need to start stretching those rest periods out two minutes to five minutes. So I'm a type A person myself. I find it hard to rest two to five minutes. When you're a personal trainer and people are paying for time, you're going to find it even harder to get them to rest for five minutes. So again, if I am doing a strength block, I like to do strength movement, maybe a core movement, then a mobility movement for the primary joint that we're working in that. And then by the time we've circled through the core and the mobility, now we've got enough rest time to actually hit another set. Um, and then this way, my client doesn't feel like we're just sitting there doing nothing, spinning our wheels. Um, and, and we're actually getting some value, something that's going to help them in that lift where we're actually honoring how long we actually should be lifting. So on the separate topic, but when I see people attempting a strength block, one of the number one things I see them failing on is actually inadequate rest. They're starting their sets too quickly and they're never going to get really into good top end working sets without a full recovery between. So this is a fun way to program these in your own workout. I like to use them either again as a warm up in between exercises that are going to be relevant to the lift that's being worked. And then, of course, you can also just hit it at the end of the workout so that we make sure that as we walk out of the gym back to our real life, we're feeling good again. So one other one that I wanted to give you guys real quickly, though, on the elbow um, and kind of loosening this up is then. So we're just going to progress from your quadruped. We've already got your knees on the ground. So just go ahead and get your get your posture up, get upright. And now I want you to place your hands right on your belly button. Now, from here, I want you to externally rotate the shoulder. So what that's going to look like now, we're going to turn out. And when you finish this external rotation, your thumbs should be pointing behind you. When you make that move, what you're going to feel, and you should actually focus because this is going to be something that you're going to have to generate on your own with intention. But I want you to actively retract the shoulder blades. 
the cue I'm going to give you in the gym for this is always going to be big chest. So as you turn, externally rotate, the thumbs are pointing back and you are thinking big chest, pulling those shoulder blades together. This is going to encourage good posture. This is going to encourage the external rotation of your shoulder. And again, between the circles that we did in our two different positions, the external rotation that we're now doing in our tall kneeling position, we're going to be able to loosen up all of the joints that are going to be surrounding the elbow in order to create more fluid movement and increase range of motion. So um, I'm not kidding on this, guys. A lot of people are asking me right now for elbow drills. One, this is just a common thing that happens to a lot of people over 35, which happens to be the primary group that I work with. So it's popping up there. But also, I think this is liable to happen whenever you are adopting a new training regimen, pushing things a little bit harder. This is just liable to happen periodically. So again, I think these are tools that everybody needs, um, not just people that... um, Like one guy I did this with, he was coming off a rotator cuff surgery, so he knew he needed PT. There was no debate there. Um, It's harder for me to convince the younger, healthier set of people to take the time to do these things because they don't feel the need yet. But um, trust me on this, you don't want to wait until you actually know you need these things. Because by that point, you're in pain and you're suffering restrictions. One of the things that I honestly think I've been so lucky, and this, this has actually been a way that, to be honest, my clients are able to teach and inform me as well as that many of my clients are older than I am. So I have gotten to learn about the health problems that I am going to have from them. As these issues have popped up in my clients, I've had to learn, educate, and address these issues in their programming. Um, In so doing, I wound up adopting and applying some of the principles within my own training. And, you know, if I can brag a little bit, I'm I'm doing pretty well. Um, And I do think a lot of the reason that I've been able to age relatively well as an athletic um, person is that I got ahead of the game on my mobility and corrective exercise. So I actually am, just had a birthday, 38 now. um, And actually all my best lifts are happening right now. So I I haven't gotten very nostalgic and, you know, so I don't tell too many stories about my past athletic performances because actually I'm I'm doing better right now. Um, And anyway, on that, before we dive into the real topic, I'll say that the one difference I do notice with age, this, this is the one that actually comes up a lot. My buddies will ask. Do you feel a difference with age? You know, they see me still doing pretty well in the, in the stuff we're competing at. And, and to be honest, here is what I notice. If um, my sports basketball, if we got one game, you're not going to notice a difference. But if I got to play again the next day, that's when you're going to see it. So at the age I'm at right now, I actually don't have the problem of not being able to raise up to the level of performance that I'm used to performing at and that I enjoy performing at. The harder part for me is I can't do it as frequently as I used to. So I was a lot better at recovering when I was younger. Um, I think I'm better at pretty much everything else. But um, so with that, that is, that is a legitimate concern that I've had to play as I age is just frequency, how often I'm doing these things. But um, if I just play like one pickup game a week, no one's going to know how bad I hurt the next day. So <laughs> I'm able to shield the young bucks from at least getting to see how much it uh, hurts me after keeping up with them for one game. But um, 
But no, I just, you know, I get annoyed. I watch a lot of basketball. So every time LeBron does something remotely athletic at 38, people are like, oh my God, how does a geriatric like him do that? And I actually get annoyed. We're, we're the exact same age. So I'm just like, God, these people talking, you don't realize this is more incriminating on how you chose to live your life than what LeBron did. <laughs> and actually, had you stayed consistent to the age LeBron is, you you would have had good athletic accomplishments to talk about in in your late 30s, early 40s too. But um, so yeah, not to take away from anything LeBron is doing, but he's um not evidence of genetic you know freakiness and stuff. Well, well, he is because he's an NBA player. But so are all NBA players. Um, what separates LeBron from the pack is not his great genetics. They've all got great genetics. It's the consistency. It's coming in and doing these things over and over and over again. That is why he has separated himself so drastically from a subset of also genetically gifted people. Let's be honest. Everybody that made the NBA has great genetics. His run of, what was it, 10 finals in a row. So that's like 82 regular season games per year, plus playoffs, plus international basketball, um, plus all the other stuff, um, endorsements, all, all that. Again. Um, you know, people are going to, you know, talk about how, how many finals he won or whatever. I, I just find it incredible actually to maintain that level of output for that time period when, again, we just look at so many other wildly talented, super gifted people who were not able to do that. So, um, again, I actually think LeBron's superpower in his longevity, and I, I would almost compare this to another athlete in, uh, well, he's now retired, but but again, this to me was a secret behind Tom Brady's success. It was just um, this consistency, never getting bored with the basics, doing it over and over and over again. And, and again, so I think that not only are the improvements in sports science, you know, evident in their, you know, continued success into later ages, but also just the consistency that each of them individually brought throughout their careers. So, um, that I actually think is a common superpower everybody can tap into, even those of us who uh, I'm among. <laughs> we don't get the, uh, we didn't hit the genetic lottery like these guys, but um, this is maybe the one thing I think you can take from their programming. Um, is stay consistent, get out in front of the problems that are going to be coming. Um, we aren't special. And so trust me, if you're, if you're young, looking at older people complaining about joint pains, it's easy to laugh now, but um, it's coming. So if you get out in front of it, it'll be a hell of a lot better. But anyway, um, with that, um, I actually want to jump into our deep dive of the day. So again, we're going to start talking about the middle way. This was, I think the first time I started to get exposed to any of the ideas in Buddhism, it was probably in high school. So back then it was um I was in an IB class standard curriculum was to read Herman Hesse Siddhartha. So I you know I got I think what what kind of most people got introduced to as or especially western folks about their experience with with Buddhism and and again one of the early things that was communicated was that the central one of the central parameters rather the central parameter of Buddhism I believe is that life is suffering um but what you do about that um, gets into this idea of the middle way. And, um, once I actually started to engage Buddhism after Herman Hesse, I got into some Alan Watts by accident. Um, 
you guys know my my parents are educators. There's a lot of books in the house when I was a kid. And so this was one of those books that I just grabbed off the shelf. Nobody ever told me to read it. It was uh, Alan Watts, In My Own Way. And um must have been 17 at the time, but there was just something about his writing that really connected for me. And then I, I did notice, though, that Watts in, in his writings was actually imploring people to read a man named D.T. Suzuki. So at least as the way Watts had explained it, and he was my entry point into a lot of this, if you didn't read D.T. Suzuki, you hadn't really read Zen. So I moved from Alan Watts to D.T. Suzuki. <laughs> now that we are at our uh, one of the the best sources to to engage Buddhism, um, we'll get into how Suzuki would describe the middle way. And so this is actually a direct quote from Suzuki, where he says, "The middle way." is where there is neither middle nor two sides. When you're fettered by the objective world, you have one side. When you're disturbed in your own mind, you have the other side. When neither of these exists, there is no middle part. And this is the middle way. So like a lot of Zen writing, there are contradictions within this statement. Um, And so one of the things that we kind of have to place into our mind whenever we're reading a Zen text, if you will, is that logic and analysis is not what the Zen system is founded upon. And I believe we have made reference to this in the past, but in Zen, knowing is doing. So rather than writing a dissertation on flying and explaining the forces that work on the wing and stuff, they would just point to a bird flying and say that that's flying. And you don't really need to write a paper about it. Um, do it. And the doing of it is fundamentally different than the explaining of it. And anyway, that's actually slightly diverging from the idea of the middle way. So getting back to how Suzuki just described it there. Many, many times in our modern paradigm, and and I'm going to keep this confined to fitness, but I think you're going to see how pretty quickly these ideas get, get applied into pretty much every domain you can think about. A lot of times people will even say this idea of, oh, well, you know, there's two sides to every coin. Um, and again, I hear people say this and, and they just kind of keep moving like that's, that's true. But has anybody ever actually looked at a coin? They're not being funny. There's not two sides on a coin. Pick up a quarter right now. So there's one side. You're looking at where George Washington's face is, right? Okay. Flip it over. There's another side. Okay. Two. But also, you could take that coin, put it on its side, and it could actually roll. So actually, there's a third side, um, which again would be just running the circumference of the circle. Um, But now if you even look at that, well, you'll see there's actually rivets and there's little... So actually, that third side isn't really one side. There's actually a lot of sides there. Um, So again, this this is kind of what I think... This is where I like to think about the middle way often is that oftentimes when we are seeing two sides of a coin, there actually isn't two sides there. There there are more positions available than the two. So this maps up to the logical fallacy that we would describe as exclusion of the middle. Whenever you're, you know, honing in on any issue and then saying, oh, well, you know, it's it's two sides. Um, No, it's not. You're you're ignoring actually countless positions that sit in between those two polarities that we've already described, 
And now we're also excluding all of the ideas that sit outside of the dichotomy that those two poles create. So for me, one of the first things that we engage when we engage the idea of the middle way is this idea that within every binary dichotomy, we are both excluding the positions in the middle that are not contained by the two most obvious positions, and we're also excluding all of the ideas that are not contained within that set. Um, so again, I, I think immediately when we view things in this binary lens, we're actually kind of overreacting to these two ideas as if those are the only acceptable positions on the polarity. So the, the reason I even thought that I needed to discuss this um, was hearing myself discuss alcohol, to be quite frank. So I, I've listened to, to, to every word and I don't disagree, but I do feel like it was falling too much into this binary camp of drink or don't drink. Um, and that's it. There's nothing in between. And reality is not black and white. Reality really is in the gray. So if I'm being honest, which I, I, I really strive to be with everybody here, most people that I know are not, you know, evidence of either end of this extreme. Most people actually live somewhere in between. So, so the part that I thought was actually important for me to communicate was that if you aren't hitting on like a hundred percent compliance with even the good ideas that I've laid down here, you're not failing me. You're not failing yourself. You're not failing your progress. Um, so again, I just wanted to dive into this idea of the middle way, because I think in so many ways in modern society, we are overemphasizing these false binary dichotomies and, and sometimes it's unavoidable. Um, yeah, I, I really, I know what I was intending to do when I put out the content. Um, but listening back, I just thought there wasn't enough room for ambiguity, nuance, and not enough talk about what happens in reality in that gray area. Um, so again, what I actually wanted to focus on in this episode was how actually thinking in that way is going to be detrimental to long-term success for for a lot of reasons. So. The first thing, though, I, I kind of want to backpedal because extreme behaviors are certainly appealing. So it's not as if I don't understand why people fall into these camps. I understand it all too well. As I've you know tried to mention, I, I've fallen for this myself so many times. I can't even count it. Hopefully, some stuff will pop up stream of consciousness and I can throw myself under the bus a little bit. The first thing I think we need to talk about in understanding this issue is what is the appeal of extreme behaviors? Why do these things dominate um, not only fitness, but every realm? Um, I'm only an expert to talk fitness. So, you know, you're, you're free to think about how this applies in other places. But um, if you guys will remember, and you've been with me for a bit in actually episode one, we had a conversation about the grain free monks. And, and I wanted to bring them up again, because they, to me, we, we've already discussed what beliefs were underpinning their action, and they had arrived at extreme behaviors, which again, we're just putting all these under a bin, but eschewing grain as they did was relatively extreme for the time. Um, the appeal to the extreme behavior 
has a lot to do with how it can provide order and structure for an individual. So from the outside, it can be hard to understand why would anybody accept anything like this? Why would somebody allow that into their life? But it it can actually provide people a sense of control and purpose to know, you know, as people often do in these sorts of thoughts, what's good, what's bad, what's my purpose, what should I do? There's something about extreme behaviors that can actually be quite comforting to some and actually provide them meaning and purpose. And these are these are valid human needs. So again, I understand why people are drawn to them. Case in point right now, and here's two that I'll just throw out there on opposite ends, but I, I do regard these as extreme health and fitness trends. Um, many people are certainly aware of veganism. And uh, obviously, for many people just eating a standard Western diet, that would be classified as an extreme you know, uh, diet. Um, vegan now has its direct corollary, which would be carnivore. So obviously, you know, don't take it from me, but these things are clearly popular, way more popular than I am. Um, I'm sure there are more vegans and more carnivores than mind muscle listeners right now. We'll work on that. But but let's be honest, both of these camps way more popular than I am. And, and again, I, I think this has to do with why they're popular. Um, a lot of people would prefer to be told what to do. They would rather have purpose and control and determination over their life. And, and while I can certainly, you know, I, I believe me, I understand that. Um, I'm just not vying for that control over my diet. And I, and I don't believe that that's maybe the realm that is uh, most useful. I, I do understand why people are drawn to this. Um, so again, and now that we're there, I, I think now it's a good time to talk about the drawbacks of extremes. Um, so let's actually just start like right there with the two examples we just laid down, because now I know real individuals that both of those more popular than me diets have totally ruined their health. So it is what it is. They got into them for whatever reason, and I don't much care. Friend of mine who went vegan though, she was also anemic. So it was her doctor talking about her iron levels that kind of convinced her to work in some meat. None of her ideas about how moral or ethical or where these things should be sourced have changed. She had to address the low iron. She tried doing it with plants. It wasn't working. So not going to lie. She still doesn't like meat. Every argument that she believed in when she was vegan, she still believes. But she also understands that her iron is low and she had to make some choices to either address that or not. Individual choice. Um, she chose to include some meat here and there. I don't fault it. And maybe somebody else would say, oh, you could have got your iron some other way or whatever. Easy to say, knowing is doing. <laughs> um, do it yourself if it's so easy. <laughs> other side of the coin, you know, I, now I know people who've gotten into the carnivore thing. And that's great. Great if you like it. But then, um, you know, when these guys come, with like a whole bunch of psoriasis, their skin's not looking good. They're complaining about, you know, joint pain, inflammation, stuff like that. It's like, well, okay, you're going to stick with this? Or are you going to maybe introduce some um, other healthy things that, that you could eat and maybe mitigate those feelings? Or 
Is this more important? Do you want to stick with this? So again, the reason, the reason I bring this up is so often when people actually embrace extremes, this I think is just the nature of extremes. There's going to be costs associated with that. But let's just go in just now purely healthy things. No one's going to argue with. Even if I just decide I want to get strong and I, and I kind of want to do this, I've never deadlifted 500 pounds. So sometimes in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, you know, I should just, you know, focus on strength till I hit that 500 and that'll be a cool accomplishment for me. But, you know, let's be honest, if I pursue that goal of strength, what's going to happen is I'm going to start losing other aptitudes. So in that pursuit, my endurance is going to get, you know, diminished. My resting heart rate might go up. There are, by me embracing an extreme approach to strength, there are going to be costs to other systems. And here's the thing. If I don't care about that, that's fine. That's my choice. But I think in general, people just need to be aware that any extreme you set up on, there are going to be costs for that. And generally in the realm of health and fitness, I think there are more drawbacks than benefits from finding yourself on extreme positions. Extreme positions are for short innings. We might apply this for four to six weeks and move on. You're not supposed to be there for the long haul. And so long run sustainable success is going to happen from more migrating back to the middle way, less extreme positions. These things are just going to generally be a lot more stable over the long haul. So my first major in college was psychology. So I still will come at this from a psychological lens. One of the models that they taught us was the cognitive behavioral model. And within that model, we talk a lot about cognitive distortions. And so again, extreme thinking to me just maps up very clearly with what we call black and white thinking. And so again, black, black and white thinking, I, I think we all got that, you know, either or, always, never. This is just a thought mode that if you're talking with somebody in a therapeutic setting, you're going to want to catch on to when they're reasoning in this manner. Um, this winds up becoming what we call a limiting belief in, in the context of psychology. So I actually think it's no different in the context of health and fitness that a lot of times extreme behaviors actually become limiting beliefs. And that you know, leads me right back to my own pursuit. And um, unfortunately, I understand this all too well from living it. You know, close cousin to black and white thinking is going to be catastrophizing. So again, I, I think back to my 20s when I was more dogmatic about nutrition than I've ever been in my life. And other people can kind of laugh. And hell, I laugh at it. It was long ago now that it's funny to me. In real time, it caused me real stress to eat things that I didn't think were healthy. And then now being honest, looking back, it's like what I thought was healthy wasn't stable. It changed with, with the studies I was reading with the stuff. And so, so looking back, I'm like, oh, wow. In 2002, I was all worried about this stuff. And then a year later, I didn't even notice that I had completely changed the stuff I was stressed out about. And, and again, now looking back, my results in my 20s were great. I think I did a lot of things right. The thing I did wrong was what I was describing. All of this black and white thinking, otherizing, good, bad, moralizing my food choices. These things cause me more internal stress um, than any benefits. And then now looking back, and this is where we're going to circle into when we talk about finding balance, 
But I'm going to learn more and more that actually being at that 100% compliance really doesn't get me that many more benefits than being at 80% compliance. So for the amount of stress, strain, um, lack of flexibility, everything I have to deal with to get myself from that 80 or 90 up to 100, I've just learned in my own path was never worth it for me. Those extra gains I got for going 100%, they didn't really matter. And, and honestly, like I was talking about with short innings, yes, there are times when I will fire on all cylinders. Um, you know, but this is really relegated for really short innings. Like we're talking out of a training year, you're maybe going to be in that mode 10% of the time, maybe. And, and like last year, I, I can be honest, last year, calendar year 365 days, I did this for six weeks. I was doing a fat loss, you know, program with a client. I wanted to demonstrate proof of concept that everything was good and I could do it too. But no, long-term success, like like I think I've been able to achieve, it, it doesn't come from constantly embracing extreme behaviors. If you follow me most of the year, you're not going to see me measuring food. You're not going to see me counting. I only do that when I need to. And then again, it's also helpful too to keep some of this stuff in your back pocket. You don't want to throw the kitchen sink at your goal right out of the gate. Because what if you actually stuck with it for eight weeks? What do you do next? So again, th this is where actually in a very pragmatic sense, why also not only the cognitive distortions, the um, how it impacts people with stressing out, just from a very pragmatic programming standpoint, by not going all out throughout your entire program, we've actually now kept a couple tools in our back pocket that we can use in those last couple of weeks to squeeze out a little bit more. So, so yeah, just like I was saying, first off, just throw always and never out of your vocabulary. I, I don't use them. So I don't never go hard and check everything, but I'm just being really honest. This represents the tiniest fraction of, of my training year. And I, I've just noticed people who achieve success over the long haul, sustain their progress, move from one goal to the next. It seems that they've structured it in a, in a similar fashion where we make sure that we are staying away from extreme behaviors away from black and white thinking, away from catastrophizing. Um, as we said before, most of real life occurs in the gray areas. Approaches that are designed to work in the black and white world, that's why they don't work in the real world. Um, so yeah, again, this, this is the one that, that, again, motivated the entire episode today. But um, everybody knows that I'm not a fan of drinking, that I do it rarely. But even with this, I actually don't identify as a non-drinker. Um, I actually identify as drinking whenever I want to. Um, but, you know, I just don't want to that often or on the intervals that you might expect me to. But um, I'm not actually walking around like some ascetic, you know, person denying himself something that he wants. Um, I just don't do it often. But trust me. Um, if you're my buddy and you've got a birthday party, bro, I'm there. Shot for shot, man. Let's go all night. Um, hey, what if you have a big professional accomplishment? You want to have a little party? I'm there. I'm with you. And then all that stuff I mentioned about living clean, I don't do it on that night. I start it up the next day. But so even me, I'm not that black and white. I, I really don't 
drink that much, but I don't want to oversell this like I'm some teetotaler or vast majority of my friends, vast majority of my family do. I am at social events all the time around alcohol, not judging people. Just don't come and talk about your fat loss diet with me while you're having a beer and you won't catch any of this crap. <laughs> um, but no, and I'll be honest, I think that's even where my attitude comes from is that this has just been one of those things that as widespread as it is, I actually don't care. But lots of people come and talk to me about their health problems. So I have to be really direct and honest about it. But again, listening to it back, even me, it was um, it was coming out just a little too much like I was black and white. Oh, my God, never do this. So I just actually wanted to take this moment to uh, to let folks know that pretty much all my clients do. A lot of them look great. Um, they could get their results faster if they didn't, but it doesn't actually stop us. So so if that's something, just don't think that uh, you got to migrate over to becoming a teetotaler, never do this stuff. That That is not at all what I've ever advocated. And again, that was why I actually thought I needed to take the time to, to talk about how my real core underpinning with, with a lot of with a lot of things, but especially health and fitness, I, I'm actually striving to find balance. So anyway, for me, that, that's the next and most important section is how do we find balance um, in health and fitness? So number one, sounds cheesy. Everybody has said this, but embrace moderation. So again, like we already started to lay down, even when I talk about my nutrition, training, workout programs, what is built into my expectation as I'm saying that is I'm expecting you to adopt that 80 to 90% of the time. I'm not actually expecting you to go to 100%. Um, particularly as we're starting out a strength training program, the, the chance that somebody is going to be able to maintain all of these new behaviors that I'm asking them to do, if I ask them to do it all at one time, is slim to none. I want to build one behavior on top of another. So if right out of the gate, it needs to be sustainable. We need to get a couple of weeks under our belt and feel like we can do more, not less. Not like we're burnt out, like, oh my God, I can't do this for another two weeks. So again, this is something that I have found over years of training real people that it's actually better to aim for about 80 to 90% compliance, build in those new habits slowly, and add one at a time. And so now, as we just mentioned, there are going to be times when we're going to want to ratchet up that compliance all the way to 100%. But being totally honest, this is going to be a tiny fraction of the training year. The vast majority of the time, we're just going to be one of firing on doing most things right most of the time. So again, you're nearing the end of your fat loss journey. You're going to a wedding. Maybe you're going to a beach vacation. Okay, lock it in. But we don't have forever. Let's just do it for two weeks till you go off to that event, have a great time. And then all that stuff we were doing, leave it behind. You're not going to stay there forever. Um, we actually want to build in ebbs and flows in our training. So again, I'm not, I'm not actually giving you guys like an olive branch or letting you off the hook. This really is going to set the stage for more sustainable progress over the long run. So anyway, I want to circle back 
summarize everything we've talked about in today's episode. In health and fitness, I think most of the ideas that we are bombarded with every day are quite simply binary, false binary dichotomies, offering one of two positions as if that is the entire issue. There's nothing else to consider. I'm going to counter that by saying broadly, the truth almost always lies somewhere in between those polarities. There's almost always some truth to what people are saying on both sides of it. But if you really follow down all of their claims, what you're going to find is that they have omitted or flat out lied about other circumstances in which that idea does not apply or doesn't have any relevance. So again, as we are planning out our training, the ideas that I want to stick out in your mind are not these extreme behaviors. I want you to think about how you can actually sustain these changes over the long haul. And that's going to require that we actually engage this idea of moderation, that we're actually at a level that we can repeat over and over and over again and actually leave some room to grow, get better, and then maybe apply some more time when it feels appropriate. But if we just immediately jump out to the extremes, this is the most common thing that I see. You will burn out in four to six weeks. When you're done, you're going to think, oh my God, I did everything right and nothing panned out. This is so hard. I'm so confused at what's going on. The This should make people feel good, but the plan was actually, it was screwed from the beginning. It was never going to work. When we're starting at the extremes, there's no place to grow. There's no place to learn. And then not only that, I know what it's like to actually get in. I know what it's like to measure every single piece of food that goes in and painstakingly log and the psychological strain and stress it throws if you ever deviate from one second. That stress you feel has real negative impacts. So you need to set up your program so that you can avoid those inevitable stresses that are going to happen every single time a friend invites you over to a party, every time someone has a birthday. This is no way to live in the real life. And this is why so many people wind up failing at their pursuits of health and fitness. It's actually not a result of the effort that they put in, but the ideas they were pursuing in that arc. And so, you know, I've actually mentioned this book to you guys before, told you it's one of my favorites, but um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, we're going to dive back in one more time. I think that if we're going to reform the world and make it a better place to live in, the way to do it is not with talk about relationships of a political nature, which are inevitably dualistic, full of subjects and objects and their relationship to one another, or with programs full of things for other people to do. I think that kind of approach starts at the end and presumes the end is the beginning. Programs of a political nature are important end products of social quality that can be effective only if the underlying structure and social values is right. Social values are right only if the individual values are right. The place to improve the world is first in one's own heart and head and hands, and then work outward from there. Other people can talk about how to expand the destiny of mankind. I just want to talk about how to fix a motorcycle. I think that what I say has more lasting value. So over the years, I've found myself agreeing with every word 
in that little paragraph, except for the part about motorcycles, because I lift weights. So <laughs> I just want to talk about how to lift weights, guys. Um, and I honestly, you know, maybe it's just me. I, I think that if we can solve these things, that it might have, you know, more lasting value than even those that are seeing it out at uh, <laughs> solving the world's, you know, biggest problems, but maybe in the, uh, in the wrong way, starting at the end instead of the beginning. As this passage teaches, many times when we approach the world as being full of subjects and objects, the relationships get described in this dualistic nature, in these false binary dichotomies. And um, I, th- I think this is a good time because this is something that I, I would just like encourage all people to think about with every idea you're seeing go around there is that, you know, th- there probably, believe it or not, is a half-truth at minimum, to every single idea that has a group carrying signs and yelling about it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have written a sign and carried it. But that doesn't mean that they've got the whole picture. Oftentimes, they they are failing to see that they themselves are stuck in a binary dichotomy, and they are failing to see the other positions that are possible within that same idea. So again, Fitness today can often become this idea of, oh, you know, is it strength training or hypertrophy, vegan or carnivore, CrossFit or bodybuilding? And again, I don't fit in with any one of these camps, tribes. If you wanted to really force me to focus on any one of them, I could trash them or I could talk about the stuff I like. So I think the only way that I can go about making sense of this world I live in is to reject this idea that I have to view things through binary dichotomies, embrace this idea of the middle way, and and recognize that any time that somebody tells me there's only two options, there's a whole bunch of other stuff being excluded and it is incumbent upon me to figure out what the best step forward for me is going to be. So again, guys, this is going to directly impact the choices that you are making in health and fitness as again, this is kind of a tribal world these days. And um, I don't know, a a lot of these people are literally my peers, cohorts, I work with them. So I I don't want to just demean everything they're doing. I think that every one of these camps that I mentioned has some positive value that they're able to contribute to people. That's why they became massively successful in, in some regard. But at the same time, there there is a dark side to that. And, and I think it is this exclusion of the middle, this failure to see ambiguity. And then quite frankly, rather than adopting any single idea, I couldn't be more supportive of people actually moving in and out of various ideas throughout the training year. So again, I think when we approach our training, instead of in the kind of Western dualistic mindset, if we take more of a Zen approach, um, Eastern that connects with you, but I'm going to be honest, actually, Buddhism and existentialism, which we tend to describe as arriving from the West, actually have a lot in common, especially this whole idea that knowing is doing and, you know, don't give me a dissertation about lifting weights, go fucking lift them. Um, yeah, Soren Kierkegaard would have been just as cool with that as Siddhartha. So um, <laughs> anyway... That, that idea of Western and Eastern actually kind of fits right back into that dualistic paradigm that I'm trying to speak on avoiding. So anyway, forget that. Forget the Western Eastern thing. You can get there a lot of different places. But again, as you are mi- migrating through this field, 
of ideas in health and fitness, just keep in mind that you want to avoid extreme behaviors. Your goal is to find balance and find something that you can sustain and keep going for the long haul. So anyway, guys, with that, I think we have a great understanding of the concept of the middle way and how we should be applying this in health and fitness. I look forward to coming back with some new episodes. Again, the comments you guys are giving me are great. I'm going to try to answer some of the questions that I've been getting in uh, some of these intros before we get into our deep dives. So anyway, I just want to thank you guys again. Please keep commenting. Please keep sharing, liking. I am told that really helps the show. And um, anyway, I would love to get these ideas out to more and more people that, that I think we can help. So anyway, guys, with that, stay strong. We'll do it again soon. Mind Muscle has been brought to you by The Antagonist. Visit us at antagonistblog.com.